Hello and welcome to Turning Season Podcast, a regular dose of active hope in this great turning toward life-honoring, life-sustaining ways of being human. Bringing you deep conversations with people who are rising to their own unique roles in this worldwide movement. This show is for every one of you who's aware of our multiple crises, feels your love for life on earth, and is finding your way to participate in cultivating ways of life we can believe in, making a life-honoring present even in the face of an uncertain future. I'm your host, Leilani Navar. I facilitate the work that reconnects. I practice acupuncture and dream work. I believe in the power of conversation, and I love having these talks with people who are throwing their weight into the momentum of this transition in their own way. Today you'll be hearing from Alpha Lowe, a water physicist, writer, and podcaster who runs the Climate Water Project and co-founded the Regenerative Water Alliance. I met Alpha through Earth Regenerators, where we also discovered some other small world family and friend connections. But what really caught my attention was last year when I heard him say, all we have to do is, and lay out this sweeping but very clear plan for how to reverse our negative effects on the water cycle with how we've built our cities, treated our forests, and run our agriculture to effectively restore rain prevent both wildfires and floods, and regenerate the water cycle here in California. This plan clearly would take years and plenty of political will and resources, but he just said, all we have to do, and I loved it because I could see it happening. You'll hear more about what that all is that we would have to do in this conversation. With a background in physics and experience working in different permaculture farms and eco-restoration projects, Alpha has entered the water restoration field, and he's been researching the connections between climate, water, and ecology. He's publishing the Climate Water Project newsletter and podcast. He also co-founded a network of water land managers, watershed restorers, and people interested in understanding this connection of water, climate, and ecology. He's the co-author and editor of the Open Collaboration Encyclopedia and has utilized those collaborative skill sets in emerging a water network. Alpha has really opened my eyes to how crucial the way we handle water is to addressing our ecological and climate emergencies. It's at least as important as carbon, but as he explains in this conversation, water is getting less attention because the science on water hasn't been made as clear to the public as the science on carbon has. So I hope that after you listen, you'll join us in spreading the word and bringing water into the general discussion about climate. You're about to learn about the water web, how pavement, deforestation, and soil quality affect it, practical things that can be done on very small and very large areas of land, the role of animals in the water web, and so much more. Enjoy. Welcome, Alpha. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi. Glad to be on here. So I'd love to start by asking you these open sentences from the work that reconnects to help us get to know you a little bit. If you want to finish this sentence, however you feel moved to. Some things I love about being alive on Earth are? 
I love um, the grass and the trees and the wildness of the sky. Mm. Beautiful. And then how about when I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is? Um, we're destroying a lot of the habitat for a lot of the creatures and organisms that live. And uh, sometimes we don't even know it or we don't realize the importance, um, like, say, the insects. And then, um, um, yeah, we're kind of like almost like creating a war between ourselves and the environment more and more. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Hmm. So as you find yourself now reckoning with all of that, I know you've found your way in relation to water to be taking part in a more life-sustaining way of doing things. And I'd love to hear an introduction to that. Yeah, so water is uh, very key to life. It sustains a lot of the life. And I got interested in it through actually some of the fires that were happening and really wondering if there was a more permacultural solution and looking at there's actually ways to restore our water cycle, to hydrate the land more. And, uh, and most of the focus had been on um, fuel reduction, cutting down more brush um, as a way to prevent fires. And, and very little work was being done on the restoring the water cycle. And then as I looked more, I saw the water cycle and the way we affected the water cycle uh, by the way we use land was really playing a big part in the droughts and the floods and also with the water scarcity issues that's plaguing a lot of the world today. So let's, let's learn a little bit about that from you. How, how do we affect the water cycle with the way that we conventionally do things? So the water gets absorbed into the land. The rain infiltrates into the soil um, if it's healthy, and then it kind of goes down and sinks into the groundwater, and then it can also um, hydrate the landscape um, as it infiltrates into the soil. But if you pave over the whole land, then it actually becomes runoff, and then um, we speed up the water. And so instead of moving more slowly, it actually speeds up. And then we, we channelize the rivers by straightening them. And then in our cities, if we create storm drains and just funnel all the water all the way back out of the ocean, well, you can see that um, moving the water quickly off the continent is actually has multiple problems, but one of them is that then we left with less water on the continent, um, on our continents. And then the other thing is that, uh, as if we can have more water on the continents, like the plants in the soil also evapotranspire. And so, uh, that water goes up into the air and then also uh, becomes rain. So our rain comes from both the ocean and from evapotranspiration. But if you lessen the amount of ev evapotranspiration, then we can actually have more droughts. Okay, so so right now, you know, let's say rain falls in an urban area, and whereas if there weren't a lot of pavement, that water might get soaked up more slowly and along these naturally winding river channels, um, and come back up through the leaves of plants, and yeah. and give us more rain, basically. But we're we're cutting that short. Yes. So, like in LA. Um... Uh, it used to be a lot more wetlands, like I think uh, Beverly Hills and Rodeo Drive, you know, they were the confluence of rivers and there was wetlands. And then there was a lot of artesian wells in Los Angeles. So if you just um, just dug just a little bit into the uh, into the ground, like water would just spout out like really high into the air because of all the water pressure below. Um, and uh, and, you know, the rivers were natural. But then 
there was a big flood in the turn of the uh, 20th century in LA. And so they channelized, they paved over all the rivers um, so that the water would then just funnel out very quickly because they were afraid of the floods. Um, and, and so that's a big problem because um, a lot of that, because the water supposed to naturally overflow the rivers and form wetlands um, and that wetlands then refills our aquifers. And it also creates a small water, the small water cycle is when the water goes up from the land, evapotranspires and then comes back down as rain. And then large water cycles when it comes in from the ocean. So both large water cycle and the small water cycle are important to create rain. But if you get rid of the um, small water cycle, then uh, then you can lessen the rain. And um, this, this happened in uh, Spain with uh, this, they were losing the rain over the decades. And so the climatologist Milan Milan was asked to investigate by the European Commission um, why it was losing rain. And he found that it was because they were paving over the land in Spain and chopping down the trees. So there was less evapotranspiration. And it just so happens in the Mediterranean climate there that you need enough evapotranspiration to push the incoming ocean humidity past the saturation point so that it can actually create rain. And he 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 published his research findings and he came to San Diego and he did a talk um, in San Diego. And someone from the U.S. Forest Service said, well, if that's true, then California is going to be on fire in 20 years. And this was about 25 years ago and lo and behold that what what that what his findings were kind of true like california has been draining all its water and so then you know in the late 2010s that california started having a lot of wildfires because basically they drained a lot of their water from their land and um and you know the way la is set up with their rivers is draining it fast and then in central california which used to be a third wetlands or quarter wetlands is now like dry desert because they've just drained it to create farmland but then the farmland is not regenerative and so the soil degrades and uh and so all that water there too is not part of the small water cycle which could uh you know rise up and go blow inland and create um more rains which would which would hydrate the forest so there'd be less um less dry for the um for the fires to come and also if you have more humidity in the air the the fires are being driven by dry hot winds and so um so that, that that is the other reason too that we're having more wildfires. It seems so um, logical, right? It seems so so sensible and also not counter to how we've we've been thinking of it and arranged things. I'm trying to picture like satellite weather maps and and sort of the geography of California and so many of the fires. There have been fires in urban areas, but there have been a lot of fires in very rural places, forests far away from our big cities, like in the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And are those Northern California forests that have been getting drier? Is that interrelated with um, the way there's pavement, you know, so far away from them, like in, in the bigger cities? Pavement uh, is is uh, important because it, it kind of, uh, it's blocking that evapotranspiration and the winds do move like all over California. So what's happening in Northern California or Southern California kind of affects each other. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and the way the winds kind of, well, I mean, there's a variety of winds, but there is some winds called the Santa Ana's that blow in from the East towards the West. Um, and they come from the, the, the Eastern side of the Sierra mountains. And then um, also, uh, and then there's so other other types of winds too that but they're they're all very hot and dry and they come at the end of summer when things are drying out 
and they blow over the mountains and they come in and then they kind of fan the wildfires. And so, and so, yeah, so that's part of the whole geographical picture. And part of the problem is that LA and San Diego um, drain a lot of the water from the eastern side of the Sierra. So in the Owens Lake area, that's where Los Angeles gets its uh, water from. So it gets piped. And the, I think the, there's this famous movie called Chinatown, which was about this whole fight over this kind of, uh, these aqueducts. Um, and, uh, and so it's dried out that whole area. Um, and it's a big problem because that means all the winds when they blow over there are not, uh, are not so wet anymore. And they're a lot more dry and much more uh, flammable. And so it makes sense how this is uh, making the fire situation worse. And then what's the connection between how we're managing water and flooding? So um, interestingly enough, the same solution for droughts, fires, and floods is kind of the same thing, is to kind of improve the soil, improve the vegetation, because if, um, if the water doesn't infiltrate into the soil and isn't slowed down by the vegetation further up in the landscape, it gains speed. And by the time it gets to the, the cities below, it'll flood them. Um, and, and one of the problems with, uh, it's not with normal fires, but when it gets really intense fires, like the type we're getting, the, the, the material in the vegetation can actually turn waxy. And this waxy substance coats the soil, which means that the rain, when it comes down, can't infiltrate. And so then it'll actually rush downhill and create more flooding. Um, and so, and so th that's kind of, uh, like in uh, near Santa Barbara, where recently, um, you know, where Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres, like you saw all those floods because they were broadcasting it. Like they, in the like a year or two early, there was fires in that taken out a lot of the um, trees. Um, and so the soil and the soil become weak. And so people had did not realize this. They should have gone back and really restore the soil by mulching and all sorts of stuff and really focus on regrowing things that can hold the soil so that when the rains come, it wouldn't create landslide after landslide, which then creates this huge rush in the rivers, which then overflows. Um, and this is true in uh, Australia too, where it's been having this alternative cycle for droughts and then fires and then floods and then droughts and then fires and floods on really massive scales. Um, and, you know, like, uh, Recently, they had to evacuate, you know, a million people were asked to evacuate because the floods got so big. But that was because two years before that, there was these huge, massive fires in Australia that had left this waxy surface and kind of had uh, weakened the whole vegetation and land, co land cover so that it couldn't slow the water. And so it's really important to do a lot of this work to, to slow the slow the water when there's huge floods and and this has come and this is and permaculture and regenerative agriculture have some of the tools of this, like how to restore soil. Because the soil has more carbon in it, each 1% of increase in carbon can absorb 20,000 gallons more per acre feet um, of rain. Wow. And so it can hold a lot more. And there's a lot of things we can do. We can like, do permeable pavement so that the rainwater can infiltrate into the land. Mm -hmm. um, we can have it so that, you know, instead of having stormwater, you can have curb cuts so that the water channels into the um, into the trees and in the roads. Um, there's lots of solutions. And LA is actually has, has uh, put forth a proposal to have these big wetlands in Burbank and, um, and some other places some, uh, in, in LA so that a lot of the stormwater will channel into the wetlands and then get cleansed by biochar and 
uh, wood chips and microbes and go into the aquifers below. And because there's so much more water storage below in LA, and that's actually naturally how water should be stored in the groundwater. Um, then uh, LA can then withdraw up that water. So that doesn't then have to um, pipe in so much water from the, from the Colorado River, from the Owens Valley and other places. Right. What, what are some more of these um, things that people could be thinking about implementing? Like you mentioned, permeable pavement, curb cuts, restoring wetlands. You, I also heard you talk about soil. I would imagine that's true on any scale if it's a small scale um, garden or big agriculture, that the healthier the soil is, the more water it can actually absorb. Yeah. So, and you can also, if you have a, a piece of land, like you can have swales, which are kind of ditches that kind of catch the rain as it coming down slopes. So then can ease, more easily infiltrate into the, um, into the groundwater. Um, so there's, in permaculture, there's a range of techniques called earthworks, which is like terracing is the way you kind of have these steps in your land um, if you have a sloped land. And so the water, when it hits the terrace, like in China, you'll see a lot of these terraces where they grow a lot of rice and other things. Yeah. Um, and so that slows the water down and helps it infiltrate. Um, and then uh, bioswales uh, beside the road is good. Um, so they catch some of the rainwater. Um, and then we can change the way we deal with our parking lots so that all that water the Klexin parking lots can actually kind of go into the ground um, by, you know, greenifying some of our the edges of the parking lots. Um, we can green our roofs. We can do a lot of gray water systems so that when you use water, it doesn't just get flushed out. Um, it can actually go and water your plants. Um, and uh, and there's a lot of people you can look around at hire to kind of help you with uh, installing these gray water um, systems. Recently, um, uh, I mean, California has passed these gray water laws, so it's now legal to do this. Um, and then also uh, returning the beaver. There's recent law in California that allowed the return of the beaver. Um, and and so and ranchers all over the Western U.S. are now appreciating the beaver when before they were against it because the beavers build dams which slow the water and get it to move laterally um, and create wetlands. So beavers are actually a huge part of why up and down the West Coast of the U.S. and also in Europe and Britain, um, that there was so much vegetation, so much lush vegetation, because the beavers slowed down the rainwater to to allow for more growth. Yeah, I was really excited to see that news about, I think there's a, a group formed even to work on bringing beavers back in California. And it, it makes a lot of sense that that might be, back to my geographical question, like a sort of more local thing to some of the forests that are far away from all this pavement. Um, that that beavers having been trapped to the point where we don't see them anymore would be leading the forests also to be drier. Um, yeah. So anyway, these are so many simple, relatively simple things that could be done completely differently to slow the water down and sink more of it back in. I'm wondering, you said L.A., I know they're they're doing some wetlands work and there's probably lots more projects that I'm not aware of, but in your in your vision, in your ideal world here where we transition to a more regenerative way of handling water, relating to water, um, I'm I'm wondering what kinds of decisions you would like to see made and who you're talking to, who makes these kinds of decisions? Like what's the path forward for um, slowing and sinking our water? 
Yeah. So on the larger scale, like, you know, the government, I feel like we need to create a movement to actually realize you actually can create rain, like vegetation and restoring the land actually leads to more rain. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's a surprising amount of climate scientists that have looked at this, including uh, uh, Manabi, who recently got the Nobel Prize in, in, for his work in developing the carbon greenhouse model, and, um, and, and Jewel Chani, who, who actually in 1979, his Chani report is actually what exploded this whole carbon greenhouse movement into the climate um, uh, awareness. But they had actually, interestingly, both Manabi and Chani had also done work to show that vegetation and soil affects the rain. Um, and so here were like key scientists that showing that the water cycle is affected by land use. Um, and there's, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of scientists that have been working with this. And it's become more the accepted thing in the last two decades that the trees and the forest are creating the rain. And yet this knowledge has not been um, infiltrated into our mainstream consciousness. So we still think all the rain comes from the ocean and it hasn't infiltrated into the government um, domain. And so a lot of work, like if you're good at publicizing or marketing or creating memes that go viral, like there's a, and if you do podcasts, like interview a lot of these scientists that are doing this work and let's make them a lot more aware. And maybe I'll just throw out some names if people want to research them, like Francina Dominguez, um, Paul Dermier, D-I-R-M-E-Y-E-R, um, Ronnie Avasar, um, Milan Milan, M-I-L-L-A-N, uh, twice, um, Antonio Nobre. Um, uh, anyway, there's, there's, there's a lot. And you, it also goes by the name precipitation recycling in the climate literature, if you want to look it up there. Um, and so somehow, even though there's hundreds and hundreds of climate scientists working on this, um, on the small water cycle, which they call precipitation recycling, and on how soil and vegetation affects the rain, somehow it hasn't become a big policy issue and a big um, awareness. And we really need to work on many levels, um, educationally and through different channels. To you know, we can we bring awareness if you're in the permaculture world of this and all that research um, that people can better know that there's actually a lot of science behind this. Um, if you're in the regenerative agriculture world or um, if you're in, you know, urban design or landscape architecture, there's, there's ways you can bring awareness to this, this, this knowledge um, to these different domains and so that it starts infiltrating and it becomes more awareness about policy because water scarcity issues are huge around the world in the Middle East, in Africa, in Australia, in Europe, in South America. In America, like, and in, in, you know, where have multiple states fighting over the Colorado River and how to divvy it up. And no one's in government is talking about how land restoration would actually increase the range, which that rain, that water evaporation would blow in with, through the winds into the uh, eastward, into the US, where at various points it will, um, it will then, you know, rain into the Colorado River. So, like, and we're not aware of how the drought propagates too. Like Francina Dominguez, she's the climate researcher at University of Illinois, you know, documented how the drought in the California kind of meanders. It takes about three months to move across the U.S., um, like to the Midwest. So the Midwest drought in the 2012 was actually in part due to the drought in California. So all the thing we're doing to like, you know, destroy the wetlands and the rivers and pave over land in California is actually partly the cause of the droughts in the Midwest. And so these chain of 
policy, like should be affecting policy. And there are people now proposing like these precipitation recycling watershed networks of, so that like for say for Europe, like because what happened you do in Germany affects the rain in France and what you do on the land in France affects the rain in Belgium. And so they need to come together and actually do, because there's all sorts of collaborative policy around the rivers, right? So if you're upstream, you can't take all the water from countries downstream or states upstream can't take all the water from states downstream. But no one's talking about if you pave over land and destroy the forest in your country or state, you're affecting rain downwind of you. And so there are now climate scientists starting to propose these new ways of doing governmental policy, but it's really nascent. And we really, if you're involved in work, that if you're in the climate movement that can help sp speed up this policy, it's it's super critical um, because no one's talking about it and it, it will really help with uh, dealing with our water scarcity issues. Yeah, I hear so much potential for collaboration, like you're saying, because the water doesn't recognize any boundaries and what we do in one place is directly impacting places sometimes pretty far away, if you think about from California to the Midwest of the U.S. And I'm sure there are ways that changing our water policy negatively impacts someone's bottom line. There's going to be someone who would be opposed to some of these changes. Maybe it impacts people's um, lives, too, in ways I don't know. But it sounds to me like something that doesn't have to be so political and polarizing because, you know, droughts, floods, fires, water scarcity seems like something we could pretty much um, find a lot of common ground on, I would think. So do you think it's mostly a lack of information? Like it just hasn't gotten as much good publicity, let's say, as the issue of carbon being a greenhouse gas that's so popularly known and understood now. But is it just that we haven't talked about it enough or is there some something I'm missing about why people don't want to talk about this? Well, both the carbon and the water had problems with people talking about it because the carbon, the, you know, the fuel, fossil fuel companies didn't like it. And then some of this um, water stuff, some of the people didn't like it because it affected land use. And so um, when Milan Milan approached the Spanish government and the you know, European Commission, some of the people in government didn't like it because it meant they had to restore all the land. Um, and so they thought it affected tourism. So it does have some impact. Um, because there's so much of a push to develop more and more land. A lot of the land developers don't, you know, don't necessarily like that. Um, I see. And, uh, but, you know, it's, a, it's a, something that's being overcome, just like you can overcome all the fossil fuel companies and their, you know, trillions of dollars they're inputting to fight, you know, the carbon story. Um, so, it, but, but the other reason it hasn't spread as much is that the carbon models is a lot easier to model in the climate models. So you can increase the carbon and then it's a lot more clear how much the temperature rises. With the water, if you throw off the water cycle, because it's kind of so multidimensional, going to the ground, into the aquifers, into the sky, and because clouds are very difficult to model in climate science models because um, the cloud, the grid size of climate models is much bigger than a cloud size. The water thing, they couldn't put a number on and it was so, it's just so multidimensional and everywhere that the climate models couldn't come up with a single number, you know, that it didn't have the clarity. So even though the guy Charney, um, who published, the, you know, was leading the commission, the U.S. commission to look into it, like, and there, you know, he put 
that was about the carbon that got a lot of attention. But he himself did research that showed, you know, the vegetation was affecting, you know, the, the climate. And so it wasn't that he was against it or not wanting the attention. He just didn't have enough cl uh, clear numbers to put onto that. And so that's part of the reason it's, um, it hasn't uh, spread. But, you know, there's a lot of good storytellers and a lot of good marketers. Like, we just really need to engage them to kind yeah. of tell this story. Because now the the, the, the science is out there. Um, yeah, It makes so much sense. And I it really makes sense what you're saying about how this is more difficult to model. Um, mm -hmm. It's much, it's so much more complex than, you know, measuring parts per million and temperature, which is measured in degrees. I think the same with fire, right? Water and fire, both we can't predict them in the same kind of way. But the stories that you're talking about, which absolutely people could make some amazing animations and different ways of telling stories about this, I, I think it will make so much sense to people. It it's so reasonable and I it reminds me, you know, I practice Chinese medicine. I know you're very familiar with Chinese medicine. I find that talking about the body as a landscape um makes sense to most people, you know, even though it's not using the same scientific numerical data or direct information about how molecules change in this or that biochemical process. Like if I just talk about how, you know, the spleen processes the food and if we don't fully process it, we can have this dampness in the body. It feels like heaviness and sluggishness. There's some way that people just are like, oh yeah, I know what you mean, you know, because we directly experience it in our bodies. And I think everything you've said about water is so uh, intuitive and it's one more example of how we've been disconnected from such a reasonable way of relating to the way water and life work. Like, of course, we need the water to go back into the ground and come back up through the plants and, and the cycle, the way the cycle has always worked. If we disrupt that, it's going to throw the whole thing off. So I'm excited about the idea of more storytelling around this. And I think it will it will make a lot of sense to people. James Lovelock proposed the Gaia hypothesis. Yes. With Lynn McGillis, um, the biologist. And so they said that the earth is a living organism. And it's really a good way to think about it. And if you want to think about the forest as the lungs of the earth, because they're kind of, and if you think of the water as kind of like the blood, uh, well, it's, so they're kind of breathing, they're breathing that water vapor into the air. And then there's kind of like these arteries or veins, like where the water's flowing through the atmospheric rivers in the sky. And then it comes down, rains down, and then it's kind of flowing back. So, you know, one of them is the veins and one of them is the arteries kind of um, the veins. Uh, and so, and, and then you can think of the wetlands as the kidneys of the earth um, and the forests as the lungs. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I love that. And the, I'd never pictured um, the water moving in the sky as a part of this type of circulation. We do in Chinese medicine talk about the lungs as the upper source of water kind of like the mm -hmm. the peak of a mountain in the body and up in the chest. And then the the vapors come together and rain down from above. So the lung network governs fluids in that way. But I'd never quite pictured, you know, I, I hear this term atmospheric river and see the clouds, but that there's actually a, a circulation up there as though through. So they vessels. can have as much water as the, as the Amazon or the Nile. Because if you think about it, if there's water flowing out, and there must also be through the rivers. There must be also be water flowing in um, from the oceans, and so there's right. a huge, yeah, that's huge amount of atmospheric uh, water vapor. But it's, the problem is it's invisible, so we kind of forget. Yeah, the water is moving like in absolutely huge amounts above us. That is the problem. We forget about what we can't see.
Right. <laughs> um, okay, so this is this is related to what I wanted to ask you because um, I was wondering about cooling because we have we have some pretty dire um, assessments of what's going on climactically, but we also know there's things that we we can't model for and can't predict, and I'm wondering about what you know about the cooling effect of restoring soils and vegetation and water cycle and groundwater. Is there any uh, thought about how that might shift what's going on with warming of the climate? Yeah. So um, just like when you evapotrant, when you perspire, um, you cool your body. The same thing happens at the surface of the earth when your the water, when the trees or soil evapotransport can actually carry the heat away. So it actually cools the surface of the earth. And so it's a, it's an important effect. So if you look at, you know, pavement and vegetation next to each other, um, even on your, like your street, you would notice that the pavement is way hotter than the, um, than the, than the greenery because the greenery is able to cool itself off. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that we could be doing. And, you know, it is one of the social justice issues too, because you'll notice the poorer neighborhoods in the city are often way hotter because there's way less greenery. Yep. Um, and so we really want to be, and, you know, we, we can have less of these urban heat domes if we have more greenery and we kind of daylight our rivers, meaning a lot of the rivers are paved over in the cities and so allow them to be there again and create more parks. And so, so you, you definitely cool locally. And so it's a bit more of a question because that water, when it, water vapor, when it goes up into the sky and forms a cloud, it actually releases that water vapor. Um, and so that heat gets released there and then it may then, uh, re you know redistribute around other places on the earth so it's not totally clear that it cools the whole earth but it does kind of cool the surface level of the earth and and um but there is there is evidence perhaps that it actually even cools the whole earth so axel Clyden, a-x-e-l-k-l-e-i-d-o-n is a is a re climate researcher and so he he was doing these uh, uh computer simulations where you have the whole earth with vegetation or the whole earth without vegetation and it's actually several degrees cooler when you do have the vegetation. Um, and then uh, Anastasia Makareva um, has been, she's the person who, uh, atmospheric physicist who came up with the biotic pump theory. She's been doing recent work to show that there's actually these problems with some of the climate models with the way they do something called the convective adjustment. And so really, if they did that properly, because they weren't fully accounting for the fact that uh, the forests were kind of creating this cooler a temperature gradient um, in their models. And so if they actually put this in, then actually the earth would cool a lot more because the way the earth can cool is that uh, because there's a whole greenhouse effect, um, the water, uh, um, usually so the sun comes in and it reflects off the earth and then it'll create these infrared ra radiation. Um, and so that infrared radiation can either go back out into space where it would cool off the earth or it can hit the greenhouse gases and then bounce around in the earth and heat it up. And But if you actually have the water vapor carry away that heat, it actually bypasses that whole level between the surface of the earth and the clouds. And, and it's only at the cloud level that it releases that water vapor heat. And so that heat then radiates into space, but it's radiating into space without by bypassing that whole greenhouse layer. So it, it, it's an interesting mechanism that allows the earth to cool down. Um, and I think a lot more attention needs to be done on this. Um, and scientists need to look a bit more at this because there is some research that suggests it, but it's, it's not an agreed upon issue. But I think once we 
get the science clarified, we'll say that even glo- definitely locally it cools the earth, but even globally it cools the earth. And when it does that, then I think um, it will really make this uh, water movement much bigger because then it's much clearer that uh, climate, the climate, global warming is, is due to carbon, but it's also due to water. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's exciting. I look forward to that becoming more clear. Again, it makes so much sense just from observing nature. Um, so that's that's cool to hear. I I hope that this momentum just grows and grows. I'm, I know it. I know it has been, but even faster. Yeah, if I could just share yeah share some of this momentum, like and so people who are listening to this podcast might look them up. So Michael Kravchik, K R A V C I K. He wrote something called Water for the Recovery of the climate um the new water paradigm so and and he wrote with colleagues and so there's new water paradigm that kind of is saying the small water cycle is important this evaporative cooling is important that trees create rain and then other uh, people um have been promoting and judith schwartz with her book um the reindeer chronicles and water in plain sight um erica geese g-i-e-s um water always wins um and then zach weiss w-e-i-s-s he has a lot of he has a cool channel on YouTube, Water Stories, which uh, talks about this watershed death spiral, how the fire, floods, and droughts are creating each other, and how to get out of it. He teaches water restoration, mm. um, and then uh, and then there's my my newsletter. Uh, if you're interested in subscribing, it's Climate Water Project. It's on Substack, so it's climatewaterproject.substack.com, and then I have an Instagram of Climate Water Project, um, and then. Uh, Ananda Fitzsimmons has a book, Hydrate the Earth. Um, yeah, so there's, a, there's, there's a, and then there's this uh, guy called the Waterman of India, Rajendra Singh, who's doing a lot of really cool work to, to restore the water. And there's actually a lot of cool work happening in uh, India. Um, Andrew Millison is a permaculture teacher with a big permaculture following millions of hits on YouTube. And he, ha- he documents the whole restoration movement happening in, in India to restore the whole water. Um, so the villagers dig swales, build ponds. And so it's been drying up, but now the aquas refill and now they can grow vegetation and people are not leaving to go back to the city and staying in the rural lands. And then interestingly enough, the rain returns to a lot of these villages um, and, and there's more rain in the dry season. Wow. I, yeah, that's, that's so cool. I was going to ask you if you had any examples of people making changes and then seeing rain um, come back locally. Yeah. And so like, uh, uh Roger Savory, he's been regreening uh, land in Africa, and then he noticed that the rain would come on his land, and the neighbors wouldn't, and the neighbors would complain. And then he was trying to convince them. And after a while, you know, maybe decade or so or two, they they become realize, okay, so it's the vegetation that's creating the rain. And Judah Schwartz talks about, um, and she's on one of my podcasts. We talk about how animals affect the rain. Um, mm. She was, she went down to um, uh, Mexico. Um, and when those farmers in some of the uh, drier lands, and so they kind of use some of the the animals and biodiversity that actually increase the the vegetation on the land, and then that also led to more rain. And so again, the neighbors complain, "Hey, how come you guys are getting more rain?" Um, and uh, I mean, you have to have pretty big pieces of land um, yeah. to, in order to uh, bring back the rain. And uh, Rajendra Singh, the waterman of India, says about six hundred to a thousand acres. Okay. Of, of land that that's when there's mountains or, or there's kind of something to block the wind. So it doesn't blow all your water vapor away. If in flat land, you have a, have to have a lot more land. I think, um, Milan Milan was saying, uh, 10 by 16 kilometers, I think. Um, 
or maybe like seven by seven miles. Um, and okay. I think Virginia is somewhere in that ballpark too. Like on flatter lands, that's how much you have to regreen, mm-hmm. which is actually what Roger Savory is proposing in, in Imperial Valley in Southern California. Mm. At the desert there to actually, he's asking to regreen 150,000 acres. Um, I interviewed him on my Climate Water Project podcast too. And uh, and he wants to start with a few of that, um, I don't think maybe 6,000 acres. And then when he has proof of concept, go to the California government and say, hey, look, this is increasing rain, reducing wildfire risk and stuff like wow. that. But he needs a big investment to kind of do this. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So he's looking for that investors to help out. Amazing. Wow, that's so exciting. Well, I'm going to link to every single person that you've mentioned. You've given us a lot of names of researchers and projects and, of course, your newsletter and your podcast conversations because um, I know there are people listening who are going to want to learn more. This is really exciting. I'm excited to hear more about that Imperial Valley project. Being here in Southern California, I'm I'm all in favor, all on board with supporting the regenerative water movement however I can from my spot in suburbia at the moment. Mm. I wanted to ask, I have so many more questions for you, but one thing I wanted to just touch on real quick because you mentioned how animals affect the water cycle and in the very beginning you mentioned your um, heartbreak around interconnection and habitat and insects and I was wondering if there's anything we should know about insects in all of this well insects are really important because they actually decompose um, uh, some of the plant material to form the soil and the soil is a is the sponge that absorbs the rain. So the dung beetle is like really key in the whole water cycle. Huh. Yeah. And so there's actually multiple ways the insects uh, are helping. Um, and also through the different ways of pollinating. Um, and and they're, they're huge, uh, you know, they're huge amount of biomass. And so they actually then uh, feed a lot of the, uh, the the animals on the, you know, above it. And so if you destroy a lot of insects, then, you know, we used to be able to I heard people say that you drive your car and uh, the windshield would be full of bugs. And uh, that's no longer the case because we've destroyed some of the insects. But that means also there's a whole trophic um, cascade, like there's a whole um, food web, food pyramid, where the larger animals then also have problems surviving because they don't have as many insects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot of these chains, like, you know, in Africa, it was interesting because when they they found that the livestock, because they had, more human contact they were actually passing on certain viruses to the wildebeest since the wildebeest were or dying but then when they eradicated this um the wildebeest uh wildebeest these large mammals uh started growing back and uh and they were worried because they were actually getting to about a million in size and uh and the the you know the park wardens were worried that they would kill all the vegetation but you know the ecologist said well that's actually the numbers it used to be so they let it be it uh, grow all the way back to a million and what's interesting is that the vegetation then grew back because what was happening was the wildebeest were eating the um, grasses. And so, so the grasses were causing these fires that were then destroying the tree saplings so that no trees would start growing. But over the decades, as, as, like there was less fires from the wildebeest eating the grass, then the trees started growing back. And then and my guess is that that also affected the rain patterns. Um, and so I call this the water web. So there's the food web, which is the connection of all the... Um, the 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 way that different animals eat each other um and there's a cycles i i call it the the water web um when you have this whole cycle between vegetation and animals that's actually affecting the water cycle and so there's this deep intimate connection between animals vegetation insects fungi um and the and climate and i my postulate is that the fungi is actually playing probably a big role in mm-hmm. the climate um because for instance there's spores 
um, actually float into the air and they actually seed rain. And the fungi right. can actually affect when they release these spores. And, uh, and so, and in fact, when, you know, when, which wind currents will then carry it. And, uh, and so there's, there's ways and the, and the fungi also passing nutrients to the different trees around. And they can actually, when the tree roots bring up water from the groundwater, the mycelia can then pass that water around to the rest of the uh, trees and plants. So they're hydrating the soil. So there's this interesting ways that the fungi are kind of this behind the scenes that's having a big impact on the um, climate, except no one's really talking about it. Yeah. It's be- <laughs> it's beginning. There's there's more and more talk about fungi. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. At least on the carbon level, but less I think about the water cycle. Yeah, how it's right. The water cycle would affect the rain and the um, and the floods. It's a great image, the water web, for us to start thinking about how it's, yeah. it's not... Um, not only is it not a linear process, it's not just a simple circle either, right? It's a whole web. Um, yeah, so I was kind of reading about the history of ecology and there was this guy, he invented the idea of the food web. I was like, wait, that's so weird. Um, it seems such a natural idea. I'm surprised someone had to think of it. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, what concept could I come up with that would actually illuminate this whole water thing? And then I said, oh, there's the water web. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and it is... Um, it makes more sense than something like the food chain, right? Like, which is what I heard in, in elementary school. And the wa- the big water cycle, is that what you call it? The large water cycle? Yeah, the large yeah, water cycle. that I heard about in elementary school. Um, and I definitely didn't get these images of webs, which is so much more how it really works in the body of Earth, Gaia, and in our own bodies, right? So I see this whole revolution in, uh, let's call it, western dominant culture consciousness too about how we how we even think about the ways life interacts and you know is interconnected yeah well you know in chinese medicine right you have different the five elements different ones are regulating each other right yes um it's just kind of same thing in ecology like different animals or vegetation are kind of regulating each other the the wolves for instance when they brought back the wolves to the yellowstone then that they actually cut down on the elk, but the elk were eating the trees, so the trees grew back and the alders. And so that led to more beavers, and then the beavers built more wetlands, which then hydrated more the land. And so it kind of was this interesting uh, cycle. And, and, and I mean, that's a water web kind of there because the, but you, you, you might not realize until, unless you're an ecologist and you know about keystone species and how the apex predator kind of affects everything else. Um, but even then, I think. They maybe didn't draw the conclusion that the wolves are actually, you know, helping with the water cycle. So mm-hmm. it makes that full connection. Um, and uh, and so I think there are things that are kind of regulating each other. So so the apex predator is regulating certain numbers of the lower animals, and then the animals are also that the herbivores are regulating certain parts of the vegetation, and you know the fungi are kind of regulating certain parts of the vegetation. But there's a kind of interesting regulatory yep. uh, loops yep. and 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 you have to kind of understand that full systems theory, like in Chinese medicine, but the same with the earth physiology, like, and how the water is being regulated through this complex network. And I, that's, I think that's a very fruitful area of research that because it involves ecology, systems theory, and climatology, it hasn't been fully figured out yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a, the five element imagery, because in, when we explain it that way, everything is always generating something. And then it's also regulating something sort of two generations away, right? And the same with what you're talking about with the apex predators and the 
herbivores and the vegetation, the vegetation's generating all of that, but also being regulated and engaging in some regulation, right? So everything's playing multiple yeah. roles. Yeah, and then yeah, and then you throw in that whole lung, the forest is the lungs and the wetlands is the kidneys. Like there's a whole thing that we've got to map out. It's building on the Gaia theory of uh, Lovelock and Margulis, like this, I think we kind of need to map out how it's all kind of uh, connected. Yeah. And then, you know, like the meridians, there's the meridians that move away from the body, right? And then meridians that come back, same with the rivers yes. going away, and the right. atmospheric rivers bring it the other way. And so that whole connection has to be f fully understood. Well, this has been enlightening and exciting. I'm so glad you're on this project and I'm, I want to support it however I can too. And I'm reminded of something I, that Joe Brewer said when he was on the podcast a few episodes ago. I know you also really value Joe Brewer's work in Earth Regenerators about, you know, if people ask him how many human beings can the Earth sustain? And he said, well, I don't know, because it depends on many things, including the regenerative capacity of the land. And anything we can do to increase the regenerative capacity is going to help with that. And so everything you've just been describing is basically all about increasing our regenerative capacity and our ability to sus continue sustaining life. So it just seems like an all-around win for everybody. I know it's not politically necessarily um, easy, but I'm, I'm so excited about it. And I'm just wondering before we close if there's anything else on your mind that you want to share. Well, you could say that we're keystone, keystone species are species, species that have a big impact on everything else. Well, humans are definitely a keystone species, but we can be a keystone species to um, make it worse, or we can actually, you know, by doing a lot of these regenerative principles, actually really um, help guide the whole system back to how it naturally uh, works. I hope that we can all come home to that identity, that we can be of benefit here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alpha. I'll, I'm going to collect all the resources. You have so many good suggestions and to keep spreading the word about how people can be involved and be supportive of this movement. Thank you for joining me for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening. Come to the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode 37 for links to all of Alpha's work and the work of some of the scientists he mentioned. While you're there at turningseason.com, if you would like to support the podcast, there is a link to donate at the bottom of the homepage. This is a labor of love and active hope, and if you would like to help me keep it going, I would be so very grateful for a contribution of any amount that feels good to you. In the next two episodes, you'll hear from authors of two upcoming books, two very different people and both strong leaders with such beautiful and valuable insights to share. You can sign up at turningseason.com to get newsletter updates if you'd like to hear as soon as those are released. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.